0: Good morning, everyone, and uh, thanks, Dave, for leading us. If you have a copy of God's Word, could I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. And uh, I'm going to suggest that, again, we, we stand, I'm sorry about that, for the public reading of God's Word. Uh, we're just going to go through quite a, a large chunk of this. We're not going to read every single verse, uh, but I'll guide you as we go along. So, please, can I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's Word. Mark 14, and we're starting where we left off two weeks ago, which is at verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told him. Down to verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the cock crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 43. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. And with him a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Verse 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Then they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. Verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asks. Mm -hmm. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? Verse 66. When Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Verse 70. Again, he denied it. Verse 71. He called down curses, and he swore to them. I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, The cock crowed the second time, and then Peter remembered the words of Jesus. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so. Verse 6. Now it was the custom at the feast to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder in the uprising. And the crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to get Pilate to release Barabbas instead. Well, what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Crucify him, they shouted. Verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross. Verse 25, it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Verse 33, at noon darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon and at three in the afternoon Jesus cried in a loud voice Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani which means my God my God why have you forsaken me and someone ran and filled a sponge with wine vinegar put it in a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink verse 37 with a loud cry Jesus breathed his last the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Please take your seats. Well, this, this is it. This is the end of our journey with Jesus through Mark's Gospel. But in so many ways, I hope that having listened to Jesus, having watched Jesus, and having learned from our contact with Jesus during these past 12 weeks, I had said we were going to cover 70 incidents in seven weeks. Well, it's 70 incidents in 12 weeks, as it turned out. But I really hope that you've been encouraged, and maybe a few of you have been inspired to embark on a new stage of your journey with Jesus as a result of the journey we have gone on together. And this morning we enter the final hours. The final dark, disturbing and difficult moments pre-resurrection. And we're actually going to finish this morning with the death of Jesus. Now not because that's the end of the story, because I realise that would be heresy. But because during this series, we have celebrated Easter. We have taken time to consider resurrection. And you'll remember what we said on that Sunday morning in April we live in the wake of the reality that the risen Christ has been let loose in the world. And we've just sang about it before I spoke. But as we draw this adventure to an end, I want us to walk the final few steps with Jesus. I want us to walk those steps towards the end of life as he and his disciples knew it. And even the very first words in our reading this morning set the scene. For the sadness and the intensity of these last hours. You will all fall away. And back in the upper room, the disciples discovered that one of them was going to betray Jesus. And that had come as a great shock to them. But now Jesus tells them that every single one of them was going to mess up. And Peter ironically says that even if the rest fall away, he won't. He's full of good intentions, as we all are. But good intentions are never enough. In fact, the road to hell is paved with them, according to some. And Jesus had even more distressing information to share with the group, particularly with Peter. That in a matter of hours, Peter, you're going to be eating your words. Tonight, Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. It's explicit prophecy. And Peter cannot believe what he's hearing. He won't accept it, and so he insists emphatically. In other words, he's convinced that he's right, and Jesus for once has got this one wrong. And so he says, even if I have to die with you... Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never, never disown you. And that is an incredible declaration of devotion and commitment. A willingness to lay down your very life for someone. A resolve to be completely faithful to someone. And at least Peter had the guts and the courage to offer those words, to make that pledge, because I'm not sure I could. And I'm not sure I'd ever really noticed the last phrase of verse 31 before, which says, and all the others said the same. Do you know, we often think of Peter as the one who promised a lot and then bottled it. But the fact is, that every single disciple expressed their loyalty and allegiance to Jesus, and then when it really mattered, every single one of them did a runner. If you jump down to verse 50, it says that everyone, everyone deserted him and fled. Because you see, words come easy. We'll all do the same, Jesus. We'll lay down our very lives for you. We'll never disown you. Words come easy. It's whenever you have to back up words by actions that that's when the difficulties kick in. And Jesus and his disciples then go to Gethsemane, which means olive press, the place where Jesus was going to experience a form of internal crushing. A place of deeply distressing trouble where it says the soul of Jesus was overwhelmed to the point of death. And you know, words on a page and thoughts in a sermon are never going to adequately capture the intensity of these moments. I'm never, ever, no matter how long I speak for, going to be able to describe how Jesus must have felt at these moments. You know, Luke refers to Jesus breaking out in a sweat. It's a unique sweat, a severe sweat that led to blood seeping through the skin. And that gives us an idea, but it's only an idea of the level of inner anxiety that Jesus was feeling. And what I think is really interesting is that prayer is what Jesus chose to do during these moments. Do you know, when your world is falling apart... There's no better option. Either you can face the dark and the difficult moments of your life on your own, or you can choose to face the darkness in communion with Jesus. That's your choice. And Jesus takes his inner circle with him. Peter, James and John. He takes them so far, but then he says, guys, I need you to stay here. I've got to go a little further. I've got to go a little deeper into the garden. And the inner turmoil then finds itself worked out in physical expression because it says Jesus collapses. He falls to the ground. And in an amazing few sentences, Jesus reveals his humanity as well as his deity. He says, Father, take this cup from me. Do you know, you can make this go away, Father. Because he says, everything is possible for you. Please, change my circumstances. And I don't know if you ever pray like that. I don't know if you ever reach a place in your life where you just cry out to God, God, everything's possible for you. I need you to take this away from me. And it's not a cup that you're looking rid of. But it's some other difficult, maybe even distressing thing, event, person, or situation that you're having to stomach. And you're struggling to stomach it. And you're struggling to stomach them. And you want them to go away. And you wish they would go away. And the Father says, no. And you know something? this is hard. That even if Jesus received that answer to one of his most heartfelt prayers, then we shouldn't be surprised whenever Father God says no to many of our heartfelt prayers. Do you know, it's only human to want to avoid pain. None of us wants to suffer. Nobody likes hassle. Nobody likes inconvenience. But our ways are not God's ways. And the next phrase and the next comment is so telling. Yet not what I will, but what you will. You see, that is reverent submission to a father in the midst of darkest struggle. And that's difficult, and that's hard. And there are some here this morning, and you're going through the mill, and you're having to drink something. And it's difficult to stomach, and there's a person who's difficult to face, and there's any number of things that you're struggling with. And to reach that place, of actually being able to say, yet yeah, not my will. It's not about what I want. It's all about, in fact, it's always about, Father God, what you're doing in me and what you're doing through me that really matters. Therefore, I embrace this. And Jesus somehow is able to make his way back to his disciples and he finds them asleep. Fair enough, they'd they'd probably been exhausted as a result of all they're having to take on board. But the fine, shut eyes must have hurt. And so Jesus says to them, could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, the body is weak. And what I want to do for a moment is, I want to head off on a tangent, although it's clearly connected. Do you know, when it comes to daily devotions, when it comes to our quiet time, or whatever you want to call it, I know that it's seldom good or helpful to be legalistic in any shape or form. How you nurture your personal relationship with God, how you engage with his word, how you feed your soul, how you restore your inner resource pool is a personal choice. That's your decision. In terms of time... And how often you should read, and how often you should pray, and how often you should listen, and how often you should observe silence, and how often you should seek solitude. Surely you should never be prescriptive. What works for some doesn't necessarily work for others. Well, let me be slightly provocative for a moment. I always used to avoid the question, how much time should you spend with God every day? I mean focus time. Intimate time. I know we're always with God. We're never out of God's presence. But in terms of specific prayer, in terms of actual times of meditation and engaging with God's word, how long should I aim for? It's a question I get asked a lot. It's a question a number of you asked me out of the back of the series we did on holy habits. And I used to always answer, it doesn't matter. It's not about time, 5 minutes, 50 minutes, once a day, once a week. It's all fine, whatever works for you, just don't get too hung up on time. And then a few years ago I was reading a book on holy habits or the spiritual disciplines of the Christian faith and it referred to this incident and it referred to this moment in Mark 14 and those words at the beginning of or at the end of verse 37, could you not keep watch for one hour? And you know as I've reflected on that, this is now the answer I offer anyone who asks me. That if you want a guideline, hear that, if you want a guideline to embrace, then set aside or aim for an hour a day. One in 24. And from my experience, erratic and all that it is, I find that these two reasons are compelling As to why I need to spend that sort of time alone with God. It's so that I won't fall into temptation. Because yes, my spirit is willing, but I can tell you my body is weak. And when I get out of the habit, and I often do, but when I get out of the habit of spending regular, intentional, focused time with God, my spiritual life suffers. Despite all my great intentions. I give up. I give in. And I mess up far easier. Whenever I'm casual about this. And whenever I am indifferent. And so I'm sticking the neck in the line. And it's only a guideline. But watch and pray for an hour a day. And monitor the difference it makes in your life. Judas then enters the garden. And he's armed with a crowd, and stooping to an all-time low, he betrays Jesus with a sign of affection. And one of the really interesting aspects of this for me is, why did there need to be a sign? I mean, surely by now everybody knew who Jesus was. And even if there was any doubt, why could Judas not have just pointed Jesus out? Why did he need to go and give him the kiss of death? Was it because a kiss was, and still is in that culture, a form, a common form of greeting? And therefore to use a kiss in this way was the ultimate hypocrisy. This was play acting taken to a sickening new level. I don't know, but it seems that Judas betrayed Jesus with what was supposed to be an act of friendship. Greet one another with a holy kiss? says Paul in Romans, there was nothing holy about this greeting. And if nothing else, the fact that Judas kissed Jesus just reveals how messed up he was. Just how twisted and greedy he had become. And no wonder he couldn't live with himself whenever the reality of his betrayal registered. And Jesus is seized and someone loses an ear. And Mark doesn't tell us Who reacted so impulsively? But John does, it was Peter. Peter couldn't cope with what was going on. And so in an act of random retaliation, he risks his own life and he cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. One minute Peter is laying his life in the line for Jesus. Remember what he said a moment ago, even if I have to die with you, I will. And if it hadn't been for the fact that Jesus miraculously replaces the servant's ear, Peter would have died there and then. But it's only a matter of moments before even having made that declaration of devotion, he's denying Jesus by a fire. Now, verses 51 and 52 are weird. I don't know if you picked this up. I I read them intentionally. It's only Mark that records them. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. What is that about? Why did Mark include that detail? Answers on a postcard. Jesus is then hauled off before the Sanhedrin. A group of about 70. Including the high priest, all the chief priests, the elders and teachers of the law. And it's there that he has to endure this whole range of false accusations and inconsistent stories. And silence is the only appropriate response. And then the high priest who Mark doesn't identify, but Matthew does, it's Caiaphas. Well, he stands to his feet and he asks the question that he's been dying to ask. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And now it's time to go public. Now it's time for no more secrecy. It's no more a case of don't go or go home and don't tell anyone what I've just said. Jesus explicitly and unambiguously discloses his identity. I am, he says. And this is the first time in three years in a public context that Jesus has been willing to say exactly who he is. The time is right, the moment has come, the news is out and what happens? The high priest loses it. As far as he and the other 70 are concerned, blasphemy has been confirmed and so he rips his clothes apart. And he condemns Jesus as worthy of death, and he then watches as the rest of the Sanhedrin throw punches and hurl saliva at Jesus. And then the guards step in, and they take Jesus out and give him a beating. And the scene then changes. And what we then read are some of the bleakest words in Scripture, because it is the sad. And the tragic record of denial. A moment ago Jesus has retained his integrity. And it's cost him his life. Or at least it's about to. Here in a darkened courtyard. Peter loses his integrity. In order to save his life. The contrast is striking. Three times Peter denies and disowns Jesus. And the moment he does it, the cock crows. And exactly what Jesus said has happened. He's vindicated once again as a true prophet. Because what he predicts actually happens. And I've often asked myself, why did Peter, despite all his bravado, why did he bottle it when it really mattered? And I'm not sure. And yet, who wouldn't? Given the circumstances, given the sheer scale of what is going on in these moments, is it any wonder that Peter couldn't cope with the pressure? And so the rooster crows and Peter breaks down. And the regret and the embarrassment and the shame, it all kicks in. But thankfully, although it's not for now, it's not the end of his story. But at that moment, Jesus finds himself totally alone. Completely by himself. One associate has betrayed him. Another ten have deserted him. And now one of his closest friends has denied him. And the internal emotional turmoil that Jesus must have been going through, irrespective of the physical suffering, it must have been incredible. And Jesus stands as this solitary figure, alone before Pilate. And Pilate says to him, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's a little phrase that Mark will use six times in the space of 32 verses. And Jesus accepts the description. And Pilate now has a problem in his hands. And the reason Pilate has a problem in his hands at this moment is that would-be kings spelt political trouble. And two key themes then emerge. And these two key themes have deep theological significance. The silence of Jesus and the innocence of Jesus. Because in that pivotal Old Testament passage in Isaiah 53, the prophet speaks of one being led like a lamb to the slaughter, who before its shearers is dumb. And in the silence of these moments, we begin to discover who that lamb was. Who that lamb is. Who the suffering servant is. And therefore, as you read these verses, you've got to engage with the likes of Isaiah 53 to discover what is going on. Because as Isaiah 53 says, Jesus is here pouring out his life onto death. And regarding innocence... Even Pilate knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. But there's an added twist that actually adds layers of meaning to this moment. Barabbas is a guilty man. There's no question about that. The Bible actually says that he had been involved in murder. He deserves to die. And yet Jesus dies in his place in order that this guilty murderer can go free. And that in a sense should send our heads spinning because the stark personal exchange that happens in this moment screams hope, it screams meaning to us. This is actually what's going on. An innocent man is dying in place of a guilty man. And therefore every single one of us as we read these words need to reach a place where we can identify with Barabbas and realize that there but for God's grace go I. And Jesus is then taken to the praetorium where he's mocked and he's humiliated and he's abused. And then he's escorted to the place of the skull where he is finally cruelly crucified between two thieves. And it says darkness descends for three hours. And in that darkness, the awful horror of the garden returns. And instead of taking the opportunity to swallow some drugged wine, which Jesus gets offered, Jesus instead drinks to the dregs. The cup that his father has given him. The cup of God's wrath. And in an expression of extreme despair and sorrow, he cries from the very core of his being, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the Bible it says, He breathed his last. And at that moment, as he breathed his last, the temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom because from now on, access into the very presence of the living God is open to all. Why? As a result of the death of a God-forsaken son. And for Mark, as he brings this moment to a conclusion and as our journey ends, he leaves the last extraordinary words from a most extraordinary and unlikely person. It's a Roman centurion who's standing before a broken and a disfigured Jesus. And all he can say is this. Surely this man was the Son of God. And as I finish this morning, the question I want to ask is this. Where do we find ourselves today? Where do you position yourself this morning? There are so many characters that we could connect with and identify with and learn from. And maybe some of us here will identify with a number. We'll align ourselves to maybe more than one character. But maybe we're like the disciples, that we're full of expressions of commitment one minute. Jesus, I'll I'll lay my life down for you. I'll die for you. If everybody else does a runner, I won't. And then the reality is we're asleep the next. Or else we run... And we hide. A bit like Adam and Eve in the garden. Our naked shame confronts us. And we just can't face God. Where are you this morning? Committed? Asleep? Hiding? Maybe we're like Peter. And it's probably not a case that any of us are ever going to publicly deny that we know Jesus or deny that we want to be identified with Jesus. But there is every possibility that our words this week That our actions, that our reactions, that the attitude we have displayed at times this week has actually denied any association we have with Jesus. That people watching on, people listening to us speak, don't hear love and grace and gentleness and respect and patience and kindness. But what they hear is aggression and bigotry and hatred and anger, and all of those things that actually just deny that we are children of God. Or maybe this morning we return again to our connection with Barabbas, and we find ourselves reminded of the fact that although every single one of us, without exception, stands guilty before a holy God, plagued by sin, racked with it, staring long-term spiritual death in the face, that we have a cause to be consumed by thankfulness this morning because the innocent Lamb of God has died in our place in order that we could gain immediate access into the intimate presence of Almighty God. Or finally, maybe we can all echo the words of the centurion, that having journeyed with Jesus right through Mark's Gospel, having listened and watched and reflected and considered, that individually, And I hope corporately as a church, we can actually affirm, surely this man was the son of God. The issue then is that if we can make that declaration, we've got to learn to live with the implications of that discovery. And that's the challenge we face for the rest of our lives. And we need God to help us.